If you haven't yet signed up for the LTAD Network Conference, we've just come up with another reason why you should. We've just received approval from the UKSCA to accredit seven CPD points per day of attendance at the 2022 conference. So if you haven't already signed up, head to ltadnetwork.com forward slash events to get your registration in. The conference runs on the 9th and 10th of July from Hartbury University in Gloucester, and we've got some amazing speakers on the schedule already, including James Baker, Dr. Matt Jordan, Dr. Megan Hill, Rob Walsh, Mike Young, David Johnson, Paul Reed, and myself, as well as some more to be announced. So don't delay, head to ltadnetwork.com forward slash events and sign up for the conference today while the early bird discount is still available. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTAD Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Marc de Saint-Croix. Mark has published over 100 articles and presented at over 100 conferences around the globe. He works predominantly in football, identifying injury risk via screening and implementing prevention programs. A key focus of his work is to help coaches develop their understanding of prevention strategies. After undertaking his teacher training degree, he knew he had an interest both in children's sport and physical activity and a growing interest in science. He completed a PhD exploring how children's muscle strength changes with growth and maturation is now using that knowledge to explore how to reduce injury risk in youth sport. This has provided him with opportunities to work with some of the world's leading football clubs. Mark has just led an Erasmus Plus European-funded project with partners in Spain and the Czech Republic to explore the knowledge and understanding of grassroots coaches in terms of youth injury prevention. He's obtained funding from FIFA, UEFA and the English Football Association to explore injury risk in female youth football and works with organisations such as England and Wales Cricket Board, Athletic Club Bilbao Football Club and Bristol City Football Club. Mark, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, no problem, Rob. It's uh, good to finally get on. <laughs> so for those who haven't come across you as an individual and, and the extensive research that you've done, we'll delve into that a little bit later on. But give us a bit of an insight into how you first came into contact with sport, how did, what were the sports that captured your imagination and, and how did you get involved in physical activity and how did that develop as a youngster? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I suppose like everybody listening, I've always been invested and interested in sport, firstly. Um, very keen footballer from a young age. Um, always thought I was going to be a professional footballer. Uh, not realizing that there's very few five foot four. I probably look quite tall here on the podcast, but uh, very few good five foot four footballers. Uh, I definitely wasn't a Gordon Strachan or a Diego Maradona, so I was never really going to make it. Uh, but back then, didn't really understand any of that and that sort of context, and went for a few trials and things. But um, 
sort of then moved into sticking with sport at university. Um, I'm going to slightly show my age here in that uh, when I went to university, there were no sports science degrees. Uh, you went and basically did a P degree. Uh, but the P degrees back then were essentially a sports science degree, a sports coaching degree and an education degree. So uh, we used to have 30 plus hours a week contact time um, doing sort of all of this stuff, which was great. So always had that sort of investment in sort of kids, teaching kids. I've done a little bit of coaching um, outside of uh, the formal curriculum stuff. So qualifies a rugby coach, a hockey coach, a football coach, all of those things. So so always had, a, had an interest sort of in kids and, and, and teaching kids. Um, but didn't enjoy teaching overly. <laughs> a couple of teaching practices can maybe quite quickly put you off teaching. Um, but no, just sort of felt I wasn't ready for teaching when I finished. Just thought, I'll tell you what, I've really enjoyed in particular the sort of physiology that I've done. So I, I decided to stay on to do a master's down at Exeter Uni. Um, and it was just by chance that, you know, Professor Neil Armstrong was down there. He was doing all the work out of the Children's Health and Exercise Research Centre. So all paediatric focused research. You know, you've had lots of people on your podcast previously, I'm sure, that, that have come out of that great establishment, probably one of the leading institutions for paediatric research in the world, um, and stayed on to do a master's. Um, sort of went to Neil and said, I want to do a master's. Can I do one? Uh, and he said, yeah, find some funding. <laughs> um, so I managed to get some funding. Uh, and then he said, what do you want to do it on? I said, well, I don't, I don't really care, really. Physiology. Um, and, and he said, well, we got this new bit of kit. It's called an isokinetic dynamometer. None of us know how it works. Go away and become the world leading expert on isokinetic dynamometry in kids. And I was a bit like, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, any guidance here? He said, no, none of us know how it works. It was almost still in the bubble wrap. Um, so yeah, very steep learning curve. Uh, but really enjoyed it, got a year in and went, I'll tell you what, this, I'm going to stay on and do a PhD. So converted the MPhil, never, never wrote up a master's, stayed on to do the PhD. And two and a half years later, there's me having written a thesis on uh, the development of uh, strength in children with some nice longitudinal data, growth and maturation focus, uh, some MRIs in there, which was quite novel back then. Um, some allometric scaling, which again was quite novel back then. A little bit of Blandon Altman, which back then was quite novel. Uh, so, so yeah, two and a half years later, here I've got a, a thesis and an interest in sort of children's strength and how it changes through just normal growth and maturation. Um, so yeah, and then just from there, stayed on, stayed on there for a while. Did a postdoc at, at Exeter. Um, obviously, continued working in that sphere. Um, and supporting other projects into kids' physiology. So, you know, also things on physical activity and power and, um, you know, all the stuff that was going on in the centre, which was great. So learn a, a wide range of skills, but always had that sort of main interest, sort of, I suppose, in strength and strength development in particular. And then we might come on to where that's sort of morphed into more of a um, sort of injury risk, injury prevention, how that's sort of grown into that, that over time. So, yeah, a bit of a potted history there. Yeah, that's it's great. I mean, as you mentioned, like at that point in time, imagining doing MRIs, doing isokinetic dynamometry on children would have raised a few eyebrows. I imagine you came across your fair share of stigma in terms of, oh no, you shouldn't be doing that with kids, etc. All that kind of stuff that we still hear today. But I imagine at that point there was a whole lot of education that had to happen. I mean, there was, and it, it just the usual classic that we come up against when we're doing any kids' work is that none of the kit was set up for, for use with kids. So we designed, I mean, the paediatric attachment that you now can buy for the Biodex were designed, it, it won't say it's designed by us, but they were designed by us in Exeter because there weren't any. And so we had Biodex over and said, look, we need shorter, shorter lever arms for the kids made. We need this, this back doesn't come, this back seat doesn't come forward far enough because the kids have got really small thighs. So we've got nine-year-olds on here. We need to move the seat forward. So we have to have extra pads made to move the seats. So all of that is always a steep learning curve. And, and, and as you say, you know, a, a lot of these things aren't set up for kids. And then it's always, it was always, well, you can't do any eccentric testing with the kids because that's, you know, that's, that's quite, it, it's quite hard. It's like, what, do you, what do you mean? Um, of course we can. <laughs> they work eccentrically all the time when they're running and jumping. So why can't we? Why can't we test them eccentrically? 
so yeah, it, it's sort of interesting still. I mean, I think, you know, the field's developed in a little bit, not 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 that much, but the field's developed in, in understanding that, you know, children are dynamic and can do, I mean, they're more robust and resilient than adults are anyway. So they're probably safer to do, I'm probably safer to do eccentric testing with a 12 year old than I am with uh, half the people that uh, work down my corridor, to be fair. And since then, you've, you know, got uh, accumulated a massive breadth and depth of research across a load of different topics, obviously, you know, regularly within that youth population, whether it's injury prevention or strength testing or looking at maturation differences, etc. So there's loads that we could go into. So let's have a look initially talking with some around of the, the kind of injury theme within youth sport. One of the things you've been regularly involved in is looking at injury prevention programs, etc. So how should a coach or those listening go about the process of constructing or even looking at some, some of the stuff that's already existing around a valid and effective injury prevention program? What, sh what should be the key kind of thought process and st stops along the way? Uh, if I had the magic wand here, I <laughs> would probably be loaded and uh, wouldn't in the kindest sense be talking to you <laughs> uh, because you know we know there isn't a magic wand we know we're working with a very complex system um, in terms of growth maturation the individualized timing and tempo of that how that informs you know if we're working in teams uh, the whole uh, differences therefore in what might be in front of you in terms of uh, training age, not just training age, but training quality, which is something I'm quite uh, strong on at the moment. It's, you know, people are talking quite a little bit about tra training age. Well, I've seen kids with high training age who still can't move because the training quality has been very poor. So it's not just training age, um, you know, chronological age, gender. Uh, so, so that concept of fitting programs together, it's that usual classic thing of individualization, but also I think mainly for anyone working with kids, it's around flexibility, isn't it? It's about being able to see what's in front of you, how that system might change quite quickly if we're going through a rapid period of growth um, and how I can be responsive to seeing that in front of me and making the correct adaptations for that individual to maximise the potential that we, that we might get out of it. Um, I suppose the other key thing, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit pedantic here. I would say I, I don't really like the term injury prevention because um, I think if you if you stick a, a, a group of young adults in a room who do sport and you say who's had an injury, they'll all put their hand up. So we don't really prevent injuries. What we're doing is injury risk management. Um, and the risks, obviously, for kids are very different to the risks for adults. So it's how we put all of those pieces of the puzzle together. And, you know, we know in our sort of cycle of, of being able to put a program together, we need to understand what the risks are first to make sure that we are putting things in that might be able to compensate against some of those risks. And the difficulty with all, all paediatric work is we know that still we've got relatively limited data that we're working off in particular, those really good, solid, robust, longitudinal data sets where we've got loads of kids who are at different chronological ages, uh, different maturational stages, all those things we talked about, different training ages, different training qualities, map them over a number of years to be able to really see what's happening. We still work off a relatively small, limited knowledge base, really. Um, in saying that, that doesn't mean that we can't sort of try and make some recommendations from where we're at at the moment, and those might change as our knowledge base develops. Well, I hope I hope it would uh, develop as our knowledge base uh, develops. Uh, so that hasn't really answered your question in any way, shape, or form. That's probably set out <laughs> the problem of the puzzle. Um, yeah, well, I, I suppose it's it's taking all of those things into consideration. I mean, I suppose our key thing is similar to stuff that you would have heard before from uh, Rodri and, and John Oliver is, is around, you know, that athletic uh, competency model, looking very much at movement competency in the early ages through a bit more unstructured, fun, play, movement, 
type activities, all the stuff John Radner's done recently as well. Well, we, you know, lots of us have been doing it maybe for years as well on sort of animals and animal shapes and, um, you know, those things that we know do all of those more complex things underneath, like anti-rotation and core work and bracing and acceleration and deceleration, but without ever mentioning any of those terms, it's it's a frog, it's a crocodile, it's a giraffe, whatever it might be. Um, and making sure we work through the whole kinetic, kinetic chain there as well, sort of toes up to heads and back down. Um, I think sometimes we get a bit hung up on what we should be doing in terms of when we try and plan stuff. Um, I'm quite pragmatic in that if you go down the sort of lower end of the um, sporting pyramid, so down to that grassroots stuff, you know, you've got mums and dads who are sort of maybe taking local teams who, you know, don't have a sports science background, aren't a strength and conditioning coach, uh, get bombarded, let's say if it's football by the FA on their four pillars anyway, you've got to do this, that, there's ball roll time, there's tech-tack, there's psych, there's social, there's physiology, and they, they're like, what does any of that mean? Um, that the importance is de-jargonizing everything, because I think we like to overly jargonize stuff. Um, so keeping it really simple at, the, at those at those lower levels and just and, and making it fun and, and some additional movements that the kids aren't already doing. Because remember, kids are nuts. I remember back when I was a kid, I, you know, I wouldn't do half the stuff now that I did as a kid. Um, uh, you know, they do loads of loading. I used to jump off my back roof shed into the field. Over, you know, I wouldn't even climb up to the shed roof now, but, you know. The load that was extreme box jumping in those days from you know not not thirty centimeters. Um, so so I think there's 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 you know we always have that concept of concern about doing too much. But if you just look at what kids do normally, they do a lot. Let's but let's just make them maybe do some movements better and in different ways. Um, yeah. So in in that early phase, where I think kids tend to do a lot of stuff quite quickly. So I I quite like to slow stuff down. So can we do that more? static hold balance proprioception thing because kids like to run around a lot which is great and you know we see loads of great clips of people doing obstacle courses and all of that stuff i'm great fun um but let's see how well they also work when they have to slow down stop decelerate break um you know land from a jump single leg holding balance proprioception work so just getting the balance in there in the mix and let's not be overly obsessing about do we have to do certain numbers of reps or sets or make sure that we're definitely working on anti-bracing today or um you know anti-rotation or core work it, it's in the early phase let's just let's just get them moving a little bit better mm, fantastic there's loads in that that we could we could dive straight into but one of the things you mentioned early on that i want to come back to and dig your brain a, a little bit more on is what do you mean by training quality and what would would be uh in beneficial training quality and what maybe not so beneficial in a training quality so what, what do you mean by that let's dig into that a little bit Ooh, okay yeah <laughs> without upsetting anybody uh no i think i think the problem that we have is if i think it comes back to that that issue of you know the, the individuals that are working with these kids at the lower levels are sort of mums and dads and things like that. They're not, they're not strength and conditioning coaches. They're not sports scientists. They have relatively limited knowledge. And I think what, what happens is we either over jargonize stuff. So they decide not to adopt things, not to implement them, not to main, and they won't maintain them because we make it too complex for them. And therefore, the quality of the type of movements that we might want the kids to, to, to do in terms, you know, maybe simple things, getting knees out over toes to reduce valgus on landing or when we're cutting and sidestepping, um, you know, or getting getting hips in good positions when we're in particular movements is, is, is making sure that we make the coach education accessible to those groups so they, they give the children better instruction that subsequently hopefully should lead to better quality of movement that then further down the pathway holds them in good stead and also probably holds them in good stead at the time because we probably know if we if we move better we might sort of be a bit more successful and we might enjoy it a bit more and we might stay more engaged so so at, at that lower end uh you know in that regard it's great but subsequently if we want 
individuals to progress through the development pathway, and if we're talking now about more of talent development pathway, we want to make sure that when we do want to start progressing that overload, um, that the fundamental movements are, are there. And and I sort of I say that because a lot of it really rung true to me just talking with Rob Arman when we started working with um, England cricket a little bit, and you know Rob just saying. He's got under 16 players who he can't load, which which is incredible, really. You know, um, and he said because they can't fundamentally move. Uh, but he said they've been in clubs since they were 10. So they clearly haven't got what we might call quality training. They've got a lot of training years behind them, but maybe just through the education of the coaches or what they've had access to, I mean, even in those environments where you might now, well, it's still developing, isn't it? Physical performance coaches in these environments. We don't have them still in, in necessarily all, even all professional environments at all age groups. Um, that if we can get some of those fundamental movement patterns better through that pathway early on, so the, the, the making sure we've got the movement that looks right in our patterning so that then further down the line, we can be overloading them. And it might, might be that we want to overload them and can overload them even a little bit sooner than we think we would anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think unpicking exactly what I mean by quality in everything is, is difficult, but I suppose our fundamental movement patterns in terms of, you know, whether it's squatting, um, but also whether it's just, you know, what position should I be in when I'm decelerating and wanting to change direction? Because I know that's a high risk activity. Um, so do I get the hips in the right position? Uh, uh, is, is the knee in, the, is sort of in a good position? Is, are we creating strong, stable, robust? Um, I don't want you to use, I need to use the term machines then. They're not, they're not machines, uh, but individuals that can, you know, cope with the demands because, that, that's the bottom line, isn't it? The, the demands are quite high. The demands aren't going to change. And in fact, the demands probably, you know, will continue to progress as uh, as we progress and evolve as humans, that the demands aren't going to go down. So um, are we building up enough resistance, resilience, robustness? I know that we're just throwing around words here, but, you know, they are the key words to make sure that the, the individuals can cope with the, the demand. Fantastic. That's sort of answers the question. What? What? I mean, I'm just trying to reinforce that it's not just when people people think about training age. It's we need to think a little bit beyond that because individuals with high training age still can't necessarily move very well. You might have someone with quite a low training age who's just had a really, really good coach or, or had access to a physical performance coach, and they might have only be doing it for a year or two, and they move brilliantly. Um, so hmm. you know, if then we say, oh well. We need to factor training age into our equation and you've got really low training age therefore we're going to start you here well that might not be right yeah i think i always find it useful when you draw comparisons with other domains i mean you know we all learned maths at school some of us got to the calculus level and some of us didn't get past the basics we all may have had a similar training age for maths if you like but it doesn't necessarily mean we all arrived at the same destination after 10 12 years so yeah it's very uh I think that training quality piece is really important and you've hit the nail on the head for me and that it's recognizing at the grassroots level they're usually people who stepped into the gap you know there's we needed a coach for the under 13s someone said okay right i'll stick my hand up and step into the breach but that doesn't necessarily mean that person was given the, the right level of support or given anything beyond a level one and some safeguarding in the first day and off you go for four or five years and no one checks in on you so it's not the fault of the person delivering it but as you said i think making First of all, making it simple enough to access for people, whether that's, you know, taking away the terminology, but also the quality of that coach development. I think a lot of times we can try and do too much. And actually, sometimes it's better off saying, look, put these three or four things, do them really well. Don't worry about the rest at this point in time. I think it'd be really crucial. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's why one of the key drivers and stuff that we have been doing with, with Rob Arman and the ECB is, is trying to get this early in the in the award pathway the coaching award pathway and it, it's always difficult their demands you know uh, th there's a lot to squeeze into a very limited amount of time and you know we're moving more and more to those sort of uh level one -y type awards being very non-face-to-face -face, all online you know the resource needs to be really good and you know 
to be fair, the ECB and, and others have got some really good resources now for coaches on, online um, to be able to sort of understand some of these key concepts. Um, as I say, I, I, a lot of it I see, though, is still overly jargonized. And one of the massive things that we spent so much time doing is making it as simple as possible. Um, you know, those sort of, if you want to call them coaching cues, keeping them just really, really you know, simple and saying, well, we're not trying to make you a, don't want to scare off that person that stepped into the breach by going, we're going to make you an S&C coach alongside a psychologist and, a, and a, you know, uh, uh, someone that thinks about full time, you know, technical coach and also probably a, a voice and a role model and all of these other things we want you to be about a thousand and one things. Oh, and you've done a few hours online course. It's, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's quite crazy. And I always think we we have things the wrong way round, you know, we always get the better coaches are higher up. Actually, we want, you know, do we actually want the better coaches? We should have no physical performance coaches in any elite teams. We should have them all at the grassroots level. <laughs> we could argue, we could have that discussion, couldn't we, about actually we've got them in the wrong place. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely uh, my kind of thought process on it. So one of the things you mentioned is obviously people like to simplify injury prevention. As you pointed out, there's a number of different factors and actually, you know, A, we can't possibly maybe control those factors at once, but B, there's a lot of other things going on. And one of those things, as you have alluded to, is around maturation. So we know the obvious things like osteochladders and severs and the kind of risk of growth-related issues to do with aggravating growth plates. But some of the things you looked at are a little bit more interesting around asymmetries and neuromuscular coordination so what's kind of going on under the hood of this ever-expanding car from a from an asymmetry and, and coordination perspective when we're going through that growth and maturation process uh, i'm quite pleased you've used the car an analogy because that's the one i use um, i would i would suggest you know you, you don't take your car to a garage or to a mechanic that doesn't understand how a car works Yet we let our children loose with people that don't understand how they work. And, and that, 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 that always worries me for, for a start, which is, again, why that sort of coach education piece for me is, is, is pretty important. But in terms of um, adding further complexity to the puzzle, and it's actually one of the reasons I, I just enjoy working in paediatrics, because it's complicated. I think I'd be bored if it was, you know, we've got a system that's pretty stable and we can maybe... A, change it a little bit through a lot of training um, you know the challenges we face if we work with kids are, are immense and I think you've hit the nail on the head that you know injury risk is complicated in itself to so try and understand all the whole range of risk factors so is it is it the amount of absolute muscular strength that we've got a specific joint angle is it the neuromuscular capability at that particular point in time and how quick the uh, the car engine can uh, can cope with the acceleration or the deceleration um, you know is it around the mechanics is it around the non-modifiable stuff the growth and maturation type related things that we know probably increase risk in the girls in particular with the widening of the hips potentially um, with the increased fat mass as a percentage of body mass rather than muscle mass um, you know, all, all of those things in terms of peak weight velocity, peak height velocity. And we're getting a bit of a clearer picture on some of that now. There are, there are, there are you know, at least four or five quite decent studies that have looked at sort of maturational stage and, and potential risk. And probably unsurprisingly, most of them are coming out around that peak height velocity period of being a, a high risk time. Um, if we throw girls into there, the other things are, you know, um, menstrual cycle estrogen, even though it, data is incredibly limited around those things about how much risk they play, you can see that we've got a high risk athlete. So if we're working with kids, we're working with high risk athletes and, and the data is showing that. Um, so sort of unpicking all of that alongside then our growth and maturation issues, e.g. individual timing and tempo, um, you know, we've got loads going on over here in terms of risk factors and then loads going on over here in terms of growth and maturation to try and put it together. And I think it comes back to almost your very first question or one of the questions about, well, how, how do we design risk management programs when we've got all of this stuff going on? Um, and and there's no there's no simple there's no simple answers, but we can we can probably, you know, 
at the moment hasn't our best guess based on some of the data that we've got. So uh, we're particularly, I mean, I'm particularly interested in fatigue a bit, the, the relationship fatigue may play in um, compromised neuromuscular performance in the kids. Uh, mainly because we, again, we have a little bit of a concept if we do a lot of work with kids that they're, that they are actually sort of quite robust. I mean, so even when I was working at Children's Health and Exercise Research Centre, we'd be doing VO2 max testing on kids and they'd be running to exhaustion. And then literally five minutes later, they're sat on a bike pedalling at 5,000 miles an hour with as much load on as they could. I think with asymmetries, it's pretty much the same as what we find with a lot of the stuff around neuromuscular function and control in that if you actually look at the data, it's still really limited. Um, you know, there's been some really good advancements recently sort of on how we might look at and calculate asymmetry. And obviously, Paul Reed's done quite a bit of that work. But e even a lot of that is quite limited on kids. Um, we know thresholds are difficult, don't we? I mean, it's, uh, you know, licking the finger and sticking it up in the wind a little bit about where, where's 10% come from? Why is it 10%? Because if you look at, at normal individuals, there probably should be some asymmetry anyway. And we always think about this, you know, we have to be symmetrical. Actually, we probably we probably don't. And kids are exactly the same. And actually, if you if you look at the if you look at the lower limbs, you know, kids are pretty active. They run around, they jump, they don't they don't tend to do lots of single legged work anyway. So you tend to find that the, the asymmetries, the limited data out there is that we don't see massive asymmetries between kids in the lower body. We might, we might in the upper body, if we've got a lot of um, single sport specialization where we are maybe using one side significantly more than the other. So there's a bit of limited data on tennis players, for example. Um, but, it, but again, we're working off a incredibly small pool of information. Um, I mean, we might argue that some form of asymmetry is good anyway. So trying to trying to get to a symmetrical um, situation might potentially be a risk factor. I mean, that's that's an interesting concept that we're saying that we've got to be within a 10% boundary. Obviously, we don't want large differences between 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 limbs. But from what I've sort of seen, and we haven't really got the data to put that asymmetry data into large data sets with other known variables yet with kids. So, you know, to say asymmetries are one of the more important risk factors I don't think we're in a position to say that as yet because we need to put asymmetries alongside functional hamstring quadriceps ratio at the right joint range of movement. We need to put it alongside, you know, proper, real, meaningful evaluation of neuromuscular function. So whether that's neuro electromechanical delay or short, medium and long latency reflexes, actual real measures of neuromuscular function. Once we put them alongside those things, are they are they do they remain risk factors? Are they or are they covariates? Do they work alongside other factors? Um, so, I think there's just a lot of interesting work we've still got to do there. Particularly, I mean, we've touched upon it, but particularly around peak height velocity and those potential rapid um, growth spur periods of what do we start to see in asymmetries around that time and again we don't have that longitudinal data yet so we can't we can't really say how important that that asymmetry is i think if we're seeing significant asymmetries we probably would want to work on minimizing those but you know minimizing them to what 10 percent is still just out it's, it's a bit like um it's a bit like unicorns isn't it we're supposed to really like them but they you know they don't really exist yeah, I'm always very skeptical when there's a very round number for a test. So anytime it's like, yeah, it's a 10%, I'm like, that's a little too satis you know, satisfying to our human brains of going, oh, that's a nice round number. Or, you know, any test that, oh, you've got to do this for two minutes. I'm like, not one minute and 56 seconds. It's exactly two minutes. You know, it's just too well-rounded for my liking. I'm exactly the same. So we call a 9.9 .9 a low-risk athlete and a 10.1 a high-risk athlete. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a nonsense, which is why cutoffs are difficult, which is why we might start to use different variables, you know, maybe 
is someone two standard deviations outside of the mean of a group? And is that actually risk rather than 10 percent? You know, what's the mean of the what's the mean difference in the group? Oh, look, it's 8 percent. And therefore, our individuals that are two standard deviations outside of that mean an at risk athlete, that would be a far more logical way of looking at it. And also then makes it specific to that group, to those kids who are participating at that level. All of those things we talked about, you know, training age, it takes into account all of those things rather than going it's 10 percent for everybody. Mm-hmm. So dig a bit um, more into neuromuscular control for us. What are we actually, when we're talking about neuromuscular control, obviously we're talking about the brain and the, and the muscular system working together, but what are the specific characteristics that we're interested in that we think may be playing a role in it? So, yeah, I, this is one, you've got me onto my uh, bug <laughs> bearing topic here, is, is the sort of, I suppose, inappropriate use often of the term I've measured neuromuscular control neuromuscular function what that actually what that actually means when I don't know someone's done a counter movement jump with some kids and we start really talking about their neuromuscular capability and it's a bit like we're not really are we um so let's be a bit cautious about how how we look at those sort of things um I think if you look from an injury perspective and a little bit from a performance perspective it's it's how quickly that neuromuscular system can work um so we have i mean every individual doesn't it has a neuromuscular capacity that that's that's almost impossible to measure we don't really know what an individual's capacity is but what we know is someone's neuromuscular capability and we want the capability to be as close to the capacity as possible now that will change through um through growth and maturation but again we band around these terms a bit loosely and I stick my hand up myself to say that probably when I did my PhD, I did this myself or where I talked about neuromuscular maturation. What is that? What does that, what does that mean? What does it look like? How does the neuromuscular system develop and mature? We don't really know because no one measures neuromuscular capability very, very well. Uh, and you know within the limitations of things that we can do with uh i don't think i get through my ethics committee in dwelling uh emg probes into kids uh into kids muscles directly you know at the tendon or at the end unit so you know the data's the data's still limited but i think what we're talking about here i mean things that we can measure and things that we have measured predominantly we might move from something like leg or limb stiffness um, that, that might give us some indication of stretch shortening cycle capability and, and there's quite a bit of work out there on kids now on 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 that but if we can get down to looking at sort of short medium and long latency reflexes and one that we've been mainly interested in because it's sort of been linked and associated with injury risk is electromechanical delay um, now, again, not an easy thing to measure well, um, but enough studies as well with kids to show that it can be measured reliably. So if we can look at um, electromechanical delay during real world movements, which, again, is the problem. So lots of those tend to be still lab based, maybe on an isokinetic dynamometer um, where we can look at force generation, obviously. Um, so that we can work out that electrical mechanical delay. Um, that's that's the type of they're the type of things I'd like to see more of, but they're, they're just so difficult to do, especially when we still go back to factoring in all of the other stuff that we've already touched upon. You know, in terms of factoring all of that out, in, in terms of maturation and training age and chronological age, and um, you know where we are in relation to maybe peak height velocity and things like that. So. I think a really important parameter, but something that's really lacking in the paediatric literature still, probably because it's really difficult to do, <laughs> which is, a, which is a, you know, a, a bit of a common thing. It's sort of like, you know, we want to do it in real world settings and it's, it's hard to do that stuff in real world settings. Probably as tech, tech advances, we know, we know, you know, tech's got way better and I'm sure eventually we'll get some really nice, funky, small wearable techs that we can use more effectively out in real world environments to, to be, have 
a sounder grounding when we're talking about neuromuscular capability in kids and how that links to both function performance and injury risk. Mm-hmm. And you kind of touched a little bit as well on, on fatigue in terms of kids previously around, you know, your example of doing a VO2 max test and then five minutes later being ready to go again effectively. And we know that, you know, uh, enzymes are slightly different in terms of, you know, really, really young kids in terms of, you know, being pr- uh, predominantly aerobic dominant versus you know, anaerobic. So I guess that that leads to an interesting question around fatigue because, you know, is, is there, is, does fatigue look different? in kids and youth and therefore does it you know influence injury differently than perhaps in an adult athlete that is going to fatigue how does that situation play out what's some of the specifics or or do we not know that yet either i think so there's some um there's some really good work by kellis on this on this area sort of around around some of the fatigue related stuff i think uh, and and some of the work sebastian rattel has done out of france as well i think we need to be careful of what we mean by the term fatigue again uh, in in the first instance um i think what we tend to have seen now from sort of the oxygen uptake kinetics work which is obviously really um pushed this area forward is that kids tend to have those fox faster oxygen uptake kinetics so therefore you know they can glycogen spare they can they can they can use those aerobic sources much much quicker than than adults can uh, and therefore you know which is probably why we see this potential fatigue resistance so there's there's some work by sebastian that suggests that through maturation kids sort of lose that ability to resist fatigue so it, and it, that it's linked to, to a maturational effect um, I mean it's an interesting it is an interesting concept again I still question how much really good longitudinal data that we've got that sort of really does plot that loss of ability to resist fatigue better than in adults so it links back still to that thing about kids being able to do a vo2 max test or even like wingate tests i mean i I don't know about you i still vomit if i do a wingate test kids kids you know look knackered and five minutes later again they're jumping back on the bike wanting to do it again um so so there, there definitely does seem to be something that that probably links to that option uptake kinetics might link Again, still limited data to some of the other things around lactate and quicker lactate removal or less lactate production. Um, so underpinning exactly what it is that makes the kids a little bit more resilient to, to fatigue, I think we we still need to find out a little bit more. I think one of the things that we've done more recently is that there's been a bit of a suggestion that kids don't, and this isn't fatigue directly, but kids don't damage muscle um through exercise so those few studies that looked at maybe ck responses after you know damaging exercise suggest that the ck response is quite low in kids a couple of the previous studies ones that we've done more recently where we've looked at ck responses like over a week um in like professional football academy environments we do see actually quite significant ck responses in kids and so if we consider that more, not necessarily fatigue, but in like a more readiness to re-perform, re-compete, replay perspective, are our kids, are the kids ready after, say, a competitive match to retrain on the you know, 48 hours later and then train again and again and again, given, you know, workloads that they, we know they now do in those professional environments? You know, is there muscle damage? What's happened to, to say, stiffness over that period of time over, say, that that micro cycle of a week from competitive match to competitive match um you know we're seeing in the work that we're doing still compromised systems in kids as young as the under 10s um from match to the next match where stiffness is still significantly reduced there's still high levels of circulating ck um but we're asking them to recompete and so does that put them both at risk and also at risk of reduced performance because of those factors? So there's some really good stuff starting to emerge on that. And then longer periods, because we don't just isolate in the week, as we know the kids are going to um, 
perform the following week and the following week and you know they'll be doing stuff in school as well as within the formal training settings so the overall load um, is there so that's where we then talk about our, our R's about robustness resilience and readiness so can we factor in those potential fatigue risks fatigue and damage risks to make sure that we're building a system that's ready, but also a system that isn't overloaded. And we've already talked a bit about some of those overtraining injuries anyway, or growth related injuries that we might, that we might get as, alongside functional overreaching. So, yeah, I think I've given you a long waffly answer there, but hmm. I think, I think, you know, there's some, there's some interesting stuff around kids and fatigue. We might think that they don't fatigue, but they, they probably do in certain ways neuromuscular capabilities as well we've done some stuff looking at emd like over a week and it and it is reduced in kids so that ability to you know utilize that neuromuscular system is affected by say a competitive match so we need to consider that in our pro programming and planning mm. well, that's really interesting i guess look, previously my kind of thought process had been perhaps there's that reduced level of fatigue because there's the reduced ability to produce high forces. And then maybe there's this trade-off that happens, you know, that as we become capable of producing higher forces, we kind of lose the ability to recover between them. But as you kind of suggest, perhaps there's something else going on there in terms of a electrical, electrical mechanical kind of delay situation. No, I think that's, I think that is a, is a really good point. I mean, there's, you know, some people would suggest maybe that that sort of reduced force production capability is actually, a sensible mechanism for protecting the immature musculoskeletal system. So, you know, we don't want them to be generating high forces because the bone density hasn't been laid down yet and all of those things. So actually the Golgi tendon units that's maybe stopping us producing those high forces in kids is a good, is a good thing. Um, although when you look at, you know, the type of forces that kids are still producing per unit kilogram body mass, they're the same as adults. Mm. Um, you know, they're not, they're producing less absolute force, but as a, you know, as a, as a per, per body mass force production, they're, they're generating the same forces that adults are generating. So. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, yes. And no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah. Muddy area. It's good. I mean, there's obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting kind of discoveries, I guess, to still be made in the area. So it's part of, you know, part of why it's great having people researching it. One of the things that has kind of popped up from time to time, and, you know, I guess originally come out of kind of the propositions of Isfahan Bali and, and that kind of crew was around the idea of windows of trainability of, you know, there's specific periods during our lifetime, particularly in, you know, um, a childhood and adolescence where we kind of have these, you know, almost these periods where we're really, you know, maximizing the ability to do this and, and then perhaps we it then kind of closes and we've lost the opportunity is there any truth to the, the concept of windows of trainability or any anything that perhaps people need to be a bit more critical of there uh, i think the answer to your question is no and potentially <laughs> doesn't really help um i would say and it, it, it sounds like I'm a bit of a broken record here, but, you know, the, the problem with any of these sort of assumptions and, uh, about windows of trainability is you need really, really good, robust, longitudinal data to make these inferences. Um, and we just don't have them. Or, or we probably do have them, actually. You know, now we've got loads of data in football academies that where, you know, probably if we pulled a lot of this data together, we could, we could map some of this potential for windows of trainability. But I mean, I think what we, what we do have is we, we know certain things. So we know that we're going to get increases in testosterone as we go through the maturation process. So we might say that, okay, of the studies that are available, we know that any changes in force production in prepubertal kids is more likely to be related to any sort of like neuromuscular maturation rather than, <clears throat> excuse me, dramatic changes in muscle cross-sectional area because we're just not laying down big, big amounts of cross-sectional area of muscle. So might we say that during those periods where we're getting changes in the length of the long bones, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, um, 
that actually we're going to see more improvements in power because we get changes in muscle volume rather than changes in muscle cross-sectional area. So, so we, we could potentially infer that there may be um, times throughout this process, because we know and we have identified that kids are interesting because they go through this period of change, which we don't get with other, with other athletes. So as you say, if we are getting in these periods where we might be able to maximize something, then we should try and try and seek those answers to those to, to those potential questions. Um, I think that if you look at what we have in terms of the models that are out there, um, they are quite sensible now um, in terms of. Sorry, bear with me a minute. Um, having an internet problem there. Sorry. Uh, in terms of the the progression, and I'm thinking again of John and Rodri's athletic movement competency models, where we have a suggestion that there might be periods where we might be looking at focusing on particular types of training based on a whole range of factors. I think and I think John and Rodri probably look at updating that model where there probably still isn't enough in there around some of that training age and training quality. So we can't just say, well, we've got somebody that's, I don't know, uh, minus one year peak height velocity. And therefore, right now, at this moment in time for that individual, what we're going to do is, I don't know, loads of um, sprint training at this point because sprint training is going to work for this individual one year post uh, pre-peak height velocity because there's so many other factors that come into play about must that must inform our decision about whether that's the right time to introduce sprint training it might be that it's not because they're getting a rapid growth spurt maybe around that time and the sprint mechanics are all over the place and therefore sprint work isn't effective during that period of time so the difficulty we have in saying that there are windows is what are the windows based on for a start? Are they based on the maturational stage? Are they based on, you know, what do we base them on? And do we base them on multiple things? Um, it comes back down to therefore having really complex, but in simple ways, individualized methods for deciding what's best for that individual at that particular moment in time. Um, and then we don't really know, based on the evidence and the data that we've got, that if we put all those factors together, that they'll get the they get benef more benefits during that window than at other periods of time. So, so the reason why I said maybe no is that I think we just don't have the data to say yes, you should. Otherwise, you know, we'd be we'd we'd all be doing the same thing because we'd all know what we were doing, and half the time we don't know what we're doing because we've got a complicated puzzle in front of us. Um, so a sensible program that moves from, you know, that, that John and Rodri have developed from, from unloaded fun, um, unstructured movement skill competency type work through to more structured work where we can start to load at specific periods of time where we might see added benefits, e.g. we got increased circulating testosterone so we should get some benefit if we do more loading at that period of time but we need to be able to have those foundational movement skills to be able to load at that period of time so there's loads of things that would come into the into play anyway about whether whether windows would be effective because if you're in a window but you can't load because the person can't move then that window becomes irrelevant in some regards so um it yeah, sounds a lot a like injury prevention kind of side of things, isn't it? There's just too many factors to be able to say, yeah, this is exactly what you should do. There's, there's lots of things going ha happening that, you know, need to be individually accounted for, I guess. Yeah. And, and again, we want to be working. I mean, you know, we never want to be stopping and focusing anyway, I would say, on, on one particular thing at a particular moment in time anyway, because sport is multi-complex and multifaceted and, 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 you know, to enhance performance as well as reduce injury risk, we need to be enhancing all of the parameters that contribute towards that performance. So by going, oh, we're just going to focus on sprint work now for the next three months. What about all the other, all the other stuff <laughs> that's mm. also probably equally important? 
100 percent so what what have you got coming up mark in the near future whether it's publications or research projects anything that's that's piquing your interest or areas of it of i guess interest or excitement of things that are coming up in the future from from a research perspective uh yes yeah, so i mean I suppose most of the stuff we're doing at the moment is around um sort of coach education and, and coaching grassroots coaches to help with what we actually just described that model of what we want kids to be able to do. So if potentially there are windows of opportunity that we can maximize those by saying that the kids move well. So um, yeah, doing lots of coach ed, ed sort of work, workshop type stuff to, to get those grassroots coaches that um, you know, don't have knowledge, um, confidence, uh, and experience to be able to implement good movement competency type training. So really training down at that level so that as those kids do or don't progress through, you know, a talent pathway that they're ready for that, for that loading, but also that the kids that just want to do it for doing it, have more fun because they move better and, um, and they get more enjoyment out of it. So, so I'm really enjoying doing that stuff at the moment. Um, we're also doing some work, which is quite exciting, uh, with Southampton Football Club at the moment as part of their new learning lab that they've set up that some of your listeners may have sort of caught sight of, um, which is a really exciting project with the Academy, Academy looking at sort of coaching and, and skill development, skill acquisition using new technologies. So there's three PhD students that are sort of linked into this learning lab. Not uh, So one of them is with us, the other's at Lee Bethkit and one at Bournemouth. Um, and, and our one is very much focused on sort of uh, constraint-based coaching, but also thinking about person-centered rather than player-centered approaches in developing good people as well as um, good players and athletes so that that's a really interesting project that that, that we've got going on um, and still still keeping my hand in with uh, we've got quite a few ongoing longitudinal studies um, looking sort of more at that uh, fatigue and risk factors in kids um, sort of over whole seasons because some of Paul Rees injury data and actually some of the Barcelona football club injury data as well seems to show two peaks in injury incidents in youth players um so we're wanting to look at why are we getting a peak you know a couple of months into the season and then a couple of months after christmas um, and that date is quite consistent now so what is that is that an accumulation of some form of fatigue effect where where we're getting uh, higher risk athletes during those periods and then how we can go in and uh, hopefully reduce some of those risks so um as always plenty going on um, yeah, sounds like you've got loads of free time <laughs> i yeah i wish uh so yeah i think i think the more anybody listening then you know the more longitudinal we can get and we know that the the kids that are in longitudinal settings where we are collecting data is sort of in clubs so i'd sort of like to see greater sharing a little bit sometimes sometimes we get quite protective particularly if in clubs where we think we're doing something special that no one else is doing the headline actually is actually you know everyone's probably doing it um uh, you know, and clubs are are getting better at doing that and the premier league's collecting some of that some of that more data through the triple p so you know i suppose it's a bit of a watch this space in terms of us us all learning and, and having more information about what happens to kids as they grow develop and, and mature in this in this um really complex time that makes them interesting to work with fantastic so what's the best place for people to to track you down is that research gate is that social media where, where can people read about what you're doing and kind of i guess keep up to date with what's happening uh, so yeah, if they want some really light bedtime reading, if they're insomniacs uh, and they want to read any of the, the papers that we've got out there, um, probably just as easy. Most universities now, all of our papers are sat on our university repository. Um, you can't get all of the papers from there. So obviously through ResearchGate and if again they're embargoed on there, you can. Um, there are there are other ways you can access you know the, the the papers so yeah i try and keep researchgate up to date repository definitely everything is on there because we have to post everything on our research repository um 
I'm reasonably active on Twitter, but I try not to get into Twitter discussions. <laughs> so you, you might notice uh, I'm on Twitter, but I post and, and I retweet. So um, I've been told I also need to sort out my Instagram and, and TikTok accounts. Um, so <laughs> the old dinosaur in me will need to talk to my uh, young children to teach me how to use all of these things. But uh, uh, yeah, at the moment, I'll direct messages if you want to contact me either through my university email account or, or messaging me through um, uh, through Twitter. I, I can reply to you through that. Um, oh, we've got everything now, though, haven't we? I've also got a LinkedIn account. I look at that occasionally um, and get notifications from that. So people do contact me through that as well, but I, I don't use that quite as much. So, yeah. Most Fantastic. You're definitely contactable then. Well, I try not to be really. If I can't <laughs> help it, but no, I, I am contactable, and you know, people contact me all the time. I, I'll try and make time as much as I can. If people have got questions and queries, um, I'm more than happy to discuss this stuff because, you know, the, this is a stuff that I enjoy doing. There's lots of other stuff about university life that uh, <laughs> and work that that isn't quite so enjoyable. But you know, this is the stuff we enjoy. So you know, you'll find anyone in this area will want to talk about it if you if you get in contact with them. So don't be scared to get in contact with us. Get in contact with us. We're happy to share, um, collaborate. You know, work with people. Give them ideas. They give us ideas as well, which is you know part of the part of the process. We're all always learning. So um, yeah. If anyone's mm. got any ideas of how we can measure neuromuscular function in the field with kids, I'd love to hear from you. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been fantastic chatting and picking your brain because you've obviously got such a breadth and depth of research. So it's good to hear it from someone who's at, at the, the front line. But I think, you know, what you're doing in terms of the, the coach education for grassroots coaches, not only fantastic, but it's vital. And I think uh, there's probably thousands of coaches out there who'll benefit from it. So thanks for, for what you're doing there. But really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram using the account at LTAD Network, as well as Twitter at LTAD Network, and find our website www.ltadnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform, as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50.